Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Also, I'm Kate Jinks, a film programmer, writer and critic. And I'm Brodie Lancaster, a pop culture critic, author and editor. In each episode, we connect the dots of pop culture and offer our own take on the idea of further reading. This week, we're talking Oscar scandals, Pen15 and Teen Tween TV and shows that were cancelled too soon, but not in that way. And we go back to the recent past, discussing the wave of 90s and noughties aesthetics on our screens. So, Brody, what have you been up to since we last spoke on this podcast? I have been watching an inordinate amount of TV and movies. I feel like I've been catching up after um, quite a long time of just working nonstop. I watched like five different shows on the weekend. We'll come back to those later because during the week I went to the theatre. Ever heard of it? No, I haven't. Tell me. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, it's this thing. It's like movies, but in front of you. I went to see Hamilton, um, a little show. Never heard of it. It's a a little indie production. Um, (laughs) It's just opened in Melbourne. I bought these tickets in June last year, which is approximately five years after the peak of my Hamilton fandom. So... I've been waiting a long time to see it in more ways than one. And by the time the day of the show came up, I'm not sure if I was like, like my overarching emotion about seeing Hamilton in the theater was kind of embarrassment. Um, Just all the, you know, the Lin-Manuel Miranda lip biting of it all made me feel a little bit icky. And, you know, the, the politics of Hamilton, I guess, have been called into question in the last couple of years. But I was like, okay, I'm a completist. 
I've got to see the thing in front of me. Five, six years ago, I was watching bootleg versions of the original New York cast. I signed up for Disney Plus when they released the show. So I went and saw Hamilton. I'd had a really bad day and I texted my friend Georgia, who I was seeing it with in the afternoon, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to lean into it tonight. I'm going to lean into every emotion that I have and I'm just going to enjoy doing some clapping. And did you do some clapping? I really did. I did a few woos and I um, felt really embarrassed. There were some very cool, well-dressed girls sitting right next to me. And every time I, I have an impulse to kind of put my hands to my face when I'm watching something I'm really enjoying or like <laughs> lean forward in my chair. Um, and I was just very self-conscious in those moments that they thought I was being too enthusiastic but I wasn't the most enthusiastic white lady in that audience. So I felt okay with that. I'm really glad that you're at peace with your enthusiasm for Hamilton um, because it means that I don't have to have any, which is great for me. Yeah, you don't have to have any. One day, if you're ever curious, I can tell you about the like gay subtext of Hamilton. Okay. Um, so after reading about it for years, I got to see the two characters who kind of were rumoured to have written like flowery letters to each other. And we're kind of off to the side of the stage, like a hand lingering on a lower back and like a little smile every now and then that I was picking up on. I mean, look, we could talk about gay subtext in and text these days in musicals all episode. But um, one highlight or low light from my life was when I saw Wicked on Broadway, not to brag, I thought. It was a gay musical. I thought it wasn't, I didn't, I, like I thought, oh, it's not subtext, it's text. Um, I thought that the good witch and the bad witch were like girlfriends. And I thought that well, was one point. is like very femme, the other one is like not so much. She's yeah. not butch, but she's like an outsider. Yeah, I thought, you know, <laughs> girlfriend wrong side of the, the like, whatever it is. Um, the, not the Oz. tracks. The, yeah, the wrong side of the Oz. And I was bitterly disappointed. But, yeah, I just couldn't believe that they didn't get together. I thought that was the story. And, um, yeah, thumbs down. Thumbs down, Wicked. Anyway. Wicked, um, not gay enough. <laughs> what have you been up to since our last episode? Um, this is day six of my partner's covid isolation journey so I am of course there with her stuck um in that isolation but I'm just experiencing maybe some symptoms myself today on day six so Fuck. we shall see um, yeah you're back to this time two years ago when it's like how will I fill my days yeah like I've had to cancel actual things these days like it's not just a given that everything's cancelled it's like I will not be able to attend any of these in-person meetings or like this event but before I before I did that before I had to go into hiding I did some really fun Q&As for the film Anonymous Club and filmed by Danny Cohen about Courtney Barnett um, and that's just in cinemas at the moment and a high recommendation from me highly recommended from me as well One thing that keeps coming up in our conversations, 90s nostalgia truly feels like it's at an all-time high and I want to know what your thoughts are on that, Brody. I have been noticing this too. I feel like it's um, a little bit of a delayed reaction that this 90s revival, is that what we're calling it? Like nostalgia has made it to TV and film because I was very involved in like the, the rookie mag world. I used to contribute to rookie but also read it 
religiously um, as an early 20s person, not a teen at all. And that felt very like the the 90s referencing that was going on on Rookie and with Tavi Gevinson's writing and with the contributors to that website, many of whom were like involved in the early years of Riot Girl and things like that. They were contributors of all ages. To me, this feels like a, almost a delayed response getting it to the screen. Remind me, Brody, when was Rookie active? Like I always read it and like I read Tavi's blog from when she was like 11, but when was Rookie actually active? I can't remember. I, I guess it was her blog was like the 2010s and then Rookie was the early 20. Teens. I don't know how we're fucking categorizing the last 20 years. So <laughs> Tavi's blog started when I was around 17, I think. So that's like 2007, 2008, maybe. And I think Rookie Mag started a, like 10 years ago now. I lived in New York for a year, went to a few events that then were like Rookie Mag style events. Anyway, 2011-12, I think was when Rookie Mag started. The first time that I remember seeing like the 90s on screen, but outside of the 90s was in the film The Wackness, uh, which came out in 2008 and it was set in 1994. And I remember sitting in the cinema for that film was like, oh no, oh no, it's already happening. <laughs> yeah. It felt so recent. It was, it, it felt like strangely recent then. Yeah. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Cause I remember thinking like, oh wow, it started like, it's a little early for me, but it started mm. And then kind of nothing for a while. I feel like it's 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 really peaked. <laughs> yeah. For a while there also, maybe this is just the bounds of my internet bubble, but for a while there it seemed like it was very focused on the music and it was the Riot Girl resurgence and it was, you know, articles about bands who were like picking up the Riot Girl like mantle and running with it and it was the punk singer documentary and all of this kind of stuff, like the, the nostalgia for the music, the political, especially feminist punk music of that era kind of had its moment 10, 10, 15 years ago now. That's really insane to think about. Yeah. I remember like when the Riot Girl archives went into like Kathleen Hanna's personal archives and a lot of zines, et cetera, went into the fails archive became like a, oh, it's real. Like people care, I guess. I'm like a nineties hoarder. I've realized like I've still got most of my ex-girl clothes from the 90s. I've got all my zines. I used to make zines and things. And, like, I've got my first skateboard from, like, 1995. I'm obsessed. I've really – I got it all. I've got, like, all the magazines. I've got, like, The Face and the early days to Confuse and everything. Stuck in my parents' garage, my poor dad. I'm glad that you still have it and that you haven't you have resisted the urge to put it on Depop so that Bella Hadid can <laughs> buy it all for like $500 a piece because that is literally what would happen I think. Yeah, I have been like I know I brought it up last time I've got a problem with it but like Heaven by Marc Jacobs that store and clothing line is I don't know it just like sends me into a tears, you know, like they're getting it so right like the the fashion styling of the kind of mid to late 90s they're getting it really correct in a very scary way but they're also selling like ephemera online so like the other day I saw there was like an Ed Templeton zine um teenage kisses and I've got like the first version of that which is teenagers smoking like a zine that I bought 
from like mm-hmm. the ex-large store in the 90s with my pocket money and that was selling for like $800. It makes me feel crazy. I mean, I can understand why that makes you feel crazy because it it's almost like a reproduction of like your personal history or something. Also, this is this is making me realize why NFTs exist because I think <laughs> that Ed Templeton should well, Ed Templeton should be making money from an say an $800 resale of one of his books right yeah but it, the nfts don't exist no they don't but like that's the that's like the mentality behind them right is that like if a painting is sold on and on and on the person who created it in the first iteration yeah get i just gets, i look nfts is something i just cannot get well, behind. i can't believe i brought up <laughs> nfts that's my understanding of them though is that right. like yeah, you're right. when you create them you withhold the rights no matter how many times they're like sold and traded and yeah. whatever anyway we're, we're getting off track <laughs> um, i'm I, I really want to apologize to everyone for bringing up <laughs> nfts voluntarily that is not what this is about um, be our first merch i'd I'm going to have to do a notes of apology, I think, on the C also Instagram. <laughs> um, but yeah, like just seeing this stuff that's being sold for so much money just kind of makes me, I don't know, a little nuts. Like I, I worked in vintage stores for a really long time, like throughout my 20s and all the time like women older than me would come in and they would see like clothes from the 70s and the 80s and they'd all freak out about it and be like oh my god this was worth nothing when I was a teenager I wouldn't wear this then and I wouldn't wear it now like I heard it all day long and I think yeah yeah I've heard it but now I am that woman I'm totally that woman and it, it's yeah it was like a reckoning with age I it's, guess it's a real like father time has come for us <laughs> moment because I I am totally with you like I saw a trend going around on TikTok of teenagers romanticizing the year 2014 no no it no, has no. it it has gotten so specific down to like a 12 month period when like what happened in 2014 yeah what did happen in 2014 Ooh. Lena Dunham's book came out. I mean, I only remember that because I was on a holiday when it happened. (laughs) But, you know, like that was that was not this like romantic era, like this idea of an era, like, you know, Taylor Swift puts out an album and a 12 month period becomes an era in her career. I think that mentality is like skewering some of this as well. But yeah, the, the thought that in the 90s, the distance back to the 70s is the same as what the distance is now to like Y2K. It makes me understand that trend cycle a little more. Like there's this um there's this fashion writer on TikTok whose name is Mandy Lee. Her username is Old Loser in Brooklyn. And she was kind of at the start of this trend forecasting of like quote unquote indie sleaze. She had this I, you know, thought of the 20 year trend cycle and how it might manifest like post pandemic. And I'm thinking of all of this now as well, because I'm watching the dropout and hearing the music that is playing in Elizabeth Holmes's first generation iPod is a lot of the music that was written about in um, Lizzie Goodman's book, Meet Me in the Bathroom. And I remember when that book came out, it was like, everyone was saying, how are you writing this historical oral history 
of a time in music that was only a few years ago. And she was like, this was a 10 year period and it's finished now after LCD Sound System's final quote unquote final Mm -hmm. show at Madison Square Garden. She was like, that was the end of this era. And that is a capsule of time that we can now look back on and study. But I think the looking back is getting just a little too recent for my liking yeah it's totally like a cultural like a pop cultural Ouroboros at this point it's just like the snake is eating its tail and it always has obviously like these trends come and go and we go through the same cycles all the time but it used to be like a 20 year gap I don't want to sound like I am like one of those people who was just like stuck in quote unquote, my time or like my generation. Um, I actually really, really love TV shows. Like I love watching films and TV shows that are set in the nineties. It's really hugely enjoyable for me as someone who was a teenager in the nineties. If you are like me of that persuasion, there's a really great article in interview magazine written by Nomi Fry, one of the writers from the New Yorker, um, and Alyssa Bennett, who's a writer, and she did a podcast with Lena Dunham called The C Word. <laughs> so they wrote this really, really great interview slash article about tracking down Evan Dando from the Lemonheads and like what they had to do to try and befriend him um, as Generation X teenagers. Uh, it's really a, like a wonderful read. Um, it's called Searching for Evan Dando. He's, he's got an autobiography coming out quite soon and I cannot wait for that. Anyway, yeah, it's funny. The Dropout is interesting. Um, uh, that is one show that I feel like a bit too soon. It's too soon. Yeah. The dropout is feeling to me, I think watching it so soon after inventing Anna and also I recently watched the WeWork documentary and I'm not going to watch the Anne Hathaway, Jared Leto, Apple TV plus series on that podcast about WeWork, but (laughs) this cycle that we're in now, that is news cycle of a scam, the podcast investigations the documentary, because there was the inventor about um, Elizabeth Holmes in 2019, there's now this new documentary called The Sinfluencer of Soho about Anna Delvey. The Sinfluencer of Soho. I've got to work on my Anna accent. And then there are the recreations and the recreations end up, all of them being 10 hours long. They're just these like black holes of charmless, like no creativity or like artfulness to be found. I've like we had a very brief conversation about Pam and Tommy in the first episode of See Also and that series finished recently and by the end of it I was like I am just watching these Halloween costumes or like Madame Tussaud's wax figures come to life there is nothing thoughtful or artful about this it's just scandals brought to life a few years after they happen I mean we have a little distance to Pam and Tommy at least Yeah, I mean, I guess that one does stand alone, but weirdly it's the one that I haven't watched. Like I'm watching, like I watched all of Inventing Anna, we've talked about that, but The Dropout is one that I kind of can't get behind. I did two episodes and I think Amanda Seyfried is really very good in it and she does the accent very well and I liked the weird dance moves that she does to the Missy Elliott song. So it's about Elizabeth Holmes who created Theranos, which is a company that didn't, that existed, but they're machine that they said existed didn't actually exist and it couldn't do the things that they said it would do which was like diagnose all your illnesses from a drop of blood yeah and the documentary was really interesting and really good that came out a couple of years ago yeah this one I'm just not there I just can't 
I, and I think maybe it's the thing of like maybe I'm just done with this cycle. Like I'm like you. I, I, every time I look at watching that WeWork show, like I just can't, I just can't do it. I can't do it. Mm. I, think I'm, I think I'm like I'm already done, but I've only watched one of them. Like I've only watched Inventing Anna and I was like, okay, that's it. Thanks. And that seems like the funnest of the lot because it is the most ridiculous and like Law and Order meets Gossip Girl or something, you know. <laughs> All these shows are just, they all feel like these shows that are created just to get everyone watching them, finishing the whole 10 or 12 hour series in the first weekend, talking about them, writing articles about them, and then you're never going to think about or watch or talk about them again. And that is kind of seems to be forming the basis of how streaming services commission, but then also make decisions to cancel series based on, you know, this this like flash in the pan moment of getting headlines and and viewers and then never being spoken of again. And where that seems to be what happened with the Netflix adaptation of the Babysitter's Club, which was announced that it's not going to get a third or future season again. Yeah, I was really bitterly disappointed by this news. Like often when a TV show gets cancelled, I'm like, oh, that's a shame. Oh, well, Uh, move along. There'll be something else. But with the Babysitter's Club, I feel like, it leaves behind a huge chasm for teenage girls, like teenage girls and the people who were once teenage girls, you know, like it's a real, feel really, really disappointed in this particular Netflix decision. And what's particularly interesting is the creator of it, Rachel Shukert, actually kind of broke her silence on, on it and um, gave one interview about it being cancelled and spoke very openly about the fact that the ratings were good. Like, of course, maybe second season weren't quite as good as the first one, but it did come out the same time as Squid Game. But, like, mm. what are Netflix actually looking for? It's, yeah, mm. it's, such a, it's such a shame. It was a really, really well-made lovely show. Yeah, I'm with you. I very rarely feel any major emotion over the cancellation, especially of a new streaming show. But I was kind of devastated to think that there weren't going to be more seasons of this show, which I think Rachel Shukert mentions in that interview is like, it had a time limit on it anyway. Like these, these kids are going to stay very young for a very short amount of time. And Anne M. Martin, the, the creator of The Babysitter's Club, is very strict about the fact that her characters do not age. They stay the age that they are forever. They're in Stony Brook forever in Christie's bedroom. No, is it Christie that they Claudia's have their meetings? Bedroom. Claudia's bedroom. Yeah. Christie's just so bossy that she comes in and takes over. She she wants them to stay that same age forever. So the show had this like very tiny window of time and it felt like it was using it really beautifully. Like this remake didn't feel like a cash grab. It didn't feel like it was jumping on a trend. It felt like taking an existing property beloved by past generations like Marvel or DC do five times a year in cinemas and just producing something new for a new generation to discover. My sister has every, similar to your copies of The Face, my sister still has every single issue of the Babysitter's Club books in boxes in my mum's garage. Because she was my elder sister, I was not allowed to read them. So my discovery of uh, the BSC was the 90s movie which I still have like a really fond affection for. It was like such a generation of stars. It's like Rachel Lee Cook, Larissa Olyanik playing Dawn. I forget who played um Claudia, but she was iconic. And the neighbor, 
was played by Ellen Burstyn. What? I didn't remember that. Wow. Yeah, she she was the grumpy neighbor of the next who lived next door to the big house where they held their summer camp. So the premise of the ninety five movie is that the babysitters host a summer camp and shenanigans ensue. Of course, um, of course. Something really interesting that Rachel Shukert mentioned in that interview too that I had never really thought of before is the way that the Netflix algorithm for all the ways that it like sends you things that it thinks you will enjoy, it can't really account for that nostalgia. Like when they're choosing the people that they're going to put Babysitter's Club in front of, they're not choosing you or I based on our profile or our viewing history, but we are like the target audience for that as well as parents, as well as teenagers. And I only knew that this show was back or even happening in the first place because I followed some of the people who like wrote and directed season one on Instagram. Yeah, right. It's, it's, yeah, it's so weird how it all works. I mean, you know, I still remember the phone number. It's like KL53231 um, is Claudia's <laughs> number. Like, why do I know that number? I don't know my girlfriend's number, but I know Claudia's number in case I need to call her. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, like I read all the books of when I was young, but I was obsessed with the original TV series that came out in 1990. Mm. Really obsessed with, like I was 10 when it came out. And it was just great, perfect theme song, just an absolutely perfect theme song. You can actually watch a couple of old episodes still on YouTube. We'll link to one. I remember Zach Braff was in an episode where Dawn was part of like Greenpeace or like a recycling program or something. She was trying to save the local park, I believe. Sure, got it. My mistake. (laughs) The TV show I found was just really special and I thought it dealt a lot with like there were – trans kids in the show like that is that's what we need on television you know like a trans child character and they dealt a lot with like grief and death loss and like gender identities and it was just a really and like ego and it it just dealt with a lot of things that I think is really missing in a lot of television and Rachel Mm. Shukert said in that interview in in Vulture it seems like girls are expected to go straight from Doc McStuffins to Euphoria and (laughs) that seems exactly right to me and I think that the Babysitter's Club the Netflix show really I don't know like it was it was doing community good and I feel like (laughs) I get I understand that yeah it's not going to have as many people watching as Squid Game or Byron Bays or whatever but in every creative industry, you have those big, big ticket items. I feel like you have those big ticket items so that you can support the other pieces of art that aren't going to reach as wide an audience and aren't as splashy and flashy. But th- I mean, that's that's how it should work. Um, and I feel like this is a prime example of of a TV show that was doing some real good. In the same way as we I we talked in the last segment about these like really discrete mini eras of time, there is that similar thing in like girlhood too, where the babysitters club was like maybe one year where you maybe you haven't got your period yet and you still want to be friends with the people you knew in primary school, but you started finding them kind of annoying for ways that you haven't learned to articulate yet. And then there's the phase of being kind of like confusingly horny and that's like (laughs) big mouth, you know? And then there's like the pen 15 era where you're like maybe dry humping um, (laughs) and you, you 
bum puff a cigarette for the first time. Like there are all these really discreet little time periods and the Babysitter's Club is such an important one and such a well-written, well-acted, like the cast of that show is truly phenomenal. Um, yeah, it's a real, it's a real disappointment. Also Alicia Silverstone playing a mother of like children in a remake of a 90s property is like incredible casting and not stunt casting in the slightest it was really great and like I loved um I can't remember the name of the actor but who played Marianne's dad just good it was such nice casting it's a show that I will you know as a 41 year old woman will really miss you brought up Pen15 which is another show that recently finished it completed its series and it felt like a beautiful place to end that series if you haven't seen it it's created by and stars Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle two real life best friends who play 13 year old best friends in like the Y2K kind of time. Now that it's finished, I truly can't wait to revisit Pen15 on like a minimum and annual basis because the the way that they handled those characters, like the the acting is to begin with, just the physicality of like two grown confident women like shrinking themselves down into the like don't fucking look at me or I'm going to explode feeling of being like 12 or 13. But also the acting of that child cast was so so strong that like I think it's Sam is the character who he and Maya have a crush on each other throughout the duration of the series that throughout it I was like I have a crush on Sam as my childhood self like that is precisely the feeling that that child actor invoked in me an adult woman yeah yeah, I totally get it it's weird right um I will say that they use body doubles for those young boys when there are kissing scenes (laughs) it's very obviously done and very amusingly done I really loved all of the scenes with them and their parents in particular um particularly the relationship between Maya and her mother Maya's Japanese American and there are lots of kind of cultural differences between the way she is living her life and the way her mom lives her life but there's a really great bottle episode in the final season which kind of explores the mother's life and history in this really cool beautiful way but my one of my favorite things about um pen 15 that is not Maya Erskine's um, incredible Ace Ventura mimicry, uh, which is not perfect, I will say. But the music in it is all really well done. It's not kind of yellow jackets in your face. Um, but it's the music consultant for Pen15 is Tiffany Anders, who is the sister of director Alison Anders, who made um, Gas Food Lodging, one of my favourite 90s films going back to the 90s. And she's Alison also directed like a lot of TV Sex and the City, L Word, Oranges mm. in New Black, etc. But there are some really great interviews out there with Tiffany Anders talking about what she goes through as a music consultant. Yeah, wow. Speaking of our favourite, like, Pen15 moments is, like, a visual gag in season one when Maya's, like, the cool girls are coming to her house and she feels such self-consciousness over, like, her wealth and status or lack thereof. And she's tidying her house in a way that I always did when my friends with more money or who were cooler or whatever were coming over to my house. And you tell your family, like, you can't swear in front of this friend she goes to church or, like, <laughs> you you can't say that embarrassing thing. And to try to make herself seem um, higher status or, like, cooler, she takes 
a Chanel shopping bag from like the beauty counter and she tacks it up on the wall of her living room. And before I had watched Pen15, one of my close friends had kind of preempted that and was like, there is a visual gag that I think you'll notice and I just want to hear about it when you do. And so, of course, when he moved into his uh, new house, I took him a small Chanel shopping bag from when I bought concealer and stuck it up on the wall of his share house. That's really sweet. Um, Yeah, there's like what you were saying about now that it's finished, wanting to go back and watch it again. I feel like I've had enough of a distance. Now I can go back and watch it again. It is one of those TV shows where I think a lot of people have problems with Cobra enthusiasm, like that they can't handle Larry David. It's, it makes them too anxious. I think that a lot of people, you know, who are awkward teenagers felt that way about Pen15. Like sometimes it's a little too much and I found myself not binging the show because it was like that. It was like, I don't I actually don't think I could handle another episode right now. It's I, like, ca- it's I can't go intense. there again. Yeah. yeah. I'm not seeing my therapist <laughs> for a couple of weeks. I have to wait. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just such a great, great show. It gave everyone uh, who was my age. I think I was around the age of the characters at the era that the show is set, like 12, 13 in 2002 ish. And it gave everyone I know the same feeling, which was like, I thought it was just me, <laughs> yeah, totally. but it was it was all of us. <laughs> yeah, there's um one scene where they're kind of doing witchcraft, like at the school, <laughs> like on the school grounds, and yeah, I got a lot of texts about that that day, and it was like, wow, there was so many of us young teen witches out there <laughs> looking for our own coven. We never knew. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for this interview that I really loved. Um, It's a conversation between Maya, one of the writers and actors, and her mum, who plays the character Yuki. And the final line that she says in this interview is um, just something really beautiful that I'm going to tease you with. You can go and read it. It's really gorgeous. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, Brody. the Oscars are happening next week, very, very soon, uh, like days after this podcast will come out. And are you, I don't know, like are you an Oscars gal? I think I uh, always know peripherally when it's happening, but I don't care so much as to like tune in for the whole ceremony. I will go back and rewatch like particularly emotional speeches years after the fact. 
like recently, very recently, I watched the Heath Ledger in memoriam acceptance speech from his sister. But no, I'm not like a I'm not like an awards show stan. <laughs> but I um I was looking at the list of nominees for this year, and I thought I had seen a lot of films recently, but I guess I haven't been watching like the Oscar films because like. Belfast and West Side Story and King Richard and all these things that are up for like a bazillion awards. I just completely missed me by. What about you? Yeah, look, I'm not that into the Oscars or any award ceremonies. And it's not because like I'm too cool for it. It's just that I, I don't know. It feels like work, I suppose. This year I feel the same way as you. I have not seen so many films that are up for, um, that have been nominated most years I would have seen every single thing and I could fill out those, you know, little like voting poll things. This year I've seen almost nothing. I think it's like a combination of extended lockdowns in Melbourne, wanting to see things in a cinema um, or saving a film that is available to stream, but saving it to see it in a cinema. Did you end up seeing, I feel like we had a conversation about The Lost Daughter where you were like, I haven't watched it yet. No, um, I haven't watched it yet. I haven't watched that. Oh my I god! Watched Power of the Dog. Oh my god! Well, they're the two the two main ones that I'm um, cheering for on Monday. I mean, the Power of the Dog of it all is like a big sticking point for me, I guess, coming into this year's awards. Because if you had asked me a week ago uh, who I wanted to scoop scoop the pool, is that the saying? Yeah. yeah, I would have said Jane Campion without a doubt. Yes, yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. We're all rooting for you, Jane. Um, and, you know, I'm very invested in uh, the Kirsten Dunst Oscar campaign. She's up for Best Supporting Actress for Power of the Dog up against the other person I'm also rooting for, which is Jessie Buckley from The Lost Daughter. But Jane is now making it very difficult to wear her colours, to put it in like a football analogy. I can't publicly root for Jane Gambian anymore because she has proven herself to be a problematic fave. <laughs> okay, there were two instances in the past, like, what, week? And the first yeah. one I was like, yeah, you tell him, Jane. And then I was like, oh, oh no, why did why did you say that? Like, I get I get why she said Anyway, well, maybe tell us what, what okay. she said. So what happened? So Power of the Dog, for anyone who is not up to date, it's streaming on Netflix, though if you're like me, you will not realise that and go and buy a ticket to see it in the cinema. I saw it one night and 24 hours later I wanted to leave a party so that I could take my friend home and he could watch it as well. It's set in like the late 1800s, very like sparse. I was about to say Outback, but it's America. So it's what the the West. Kirsten Dunst plays a like local widow. She has a teenage son played by iconic Australian Cody Smith McPhee. And there are these two local brothers who run a ranch, a very big ranch that employs a lot of people. Benedict Cumberbatch is like the older very mean, rude one who wears chaps a lot. That will come up later. <laughs> and um, Jesse Plemons plays the more, the younger and softer and also more modern of the two. Like he's kind of, I guess, like the businessman of the family. He's the one who puts on a suit and his brother kind of resents him for that. It's a lot of like gruff masculinity in the film, which is not always my favourite uh type of character to invest in. There's also this this storyline running through it about like queerness in that um, time and environment, alcoholism and this kind of uh, very ominous 
not quite abuse in the traditional sense, but like a very threatening, menacing energy that leads Kirsten Dunst's character down like a very dark path. But while all of this is happening, like Cody Smith McPhee is like expressing himself, making flowers out of paper and like hula hooping. So we love him. He's very vocal. He's very expressive. And he's an, turns an incredible performance in this film. Anyway, that's like a really strange description of the movie. But the wild west of it all comes up when recently Sam Elliott, the actor, he played the older brother in um, A Star Is Born. And he has been in, he was in like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, like has a long history of of acting in Western films. He also starred alongside Cher in Mask, if those are the references that make the most sense to you, like they do me. He was on Mark Maron's podcast recently and they were talking about the power of the dog and he got really mad about the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch's character wore chaps because that's not what everyone does all the time, I guess. And he was like, and there are all these allusions to homosexuality. And Mark Maron was kind of like, no, like that's the point. They're not like inferring anything. They're telling you that that is like a thing that's going on. And Sam Elliott's response was essentially saying like, what the fuck does Jane Campion know about the Wild West? Like she's brought in this person from New Zealand and she's saying this is the way it was back then. So Jane Campion is asked about this on the red carpet of the Directors Guild of America Awards, Directors Guild Awards. Anyway, she calls Sam Elliott a B-I-T-C-H and she says, I'm sorry, but he's not a cowboy. He's an actor, which is... I loved it. I loved Mwah. it so much. I loved it. When she said that, when she spelled out <sighs> bitch, I was like, oh, 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 here she goes. Also because she's in her New Zealand accent too, like B-I-T-C-H. That was a bad New Zealand. My accent work is not the best today. But um, like that was, uh, we have to give Jane credit. That's an incredible response. She says, she describes the West as a mythic space and says there's a lot of room on the range. And she's then she makes a very uh, accurate point, which is like, I think what he said was sexist. I consider myself a creator and Sam Elliott thinks of me as a woman or something lesser first. Um, which totally. is tr- and true. You still don't hear women saying that in public um, unless, you know, they're directly asked because, you know, like they're on, like Jane's on an Oscar campaign, you know, and I'm so pleased that she has the wherewithal to be able to say those things and speak her truth about mm. that. Then she spoke a little more a little later then, in the week. Then she unfortunately continued speaking. <laughs> <laughs> she did a bit of a 180. I mean, not really. I guess she was like riding high on this like feminist wave, which we love, but we don't love it when it gets very white feminist. And Venus and Serena Williams, who are also on an Oscar campaign, I guess, because the film that they produced about their fathers and his like role in their success, um, King Richard. Richard is also up for all these Oscars. Um, so they're at all these events as well. And at the Critics' Choice Awards, while accepting, I think, Best Director, Jane Campion got up and essentially said, for no reason, <laughs> pointed them out and said, like, you two are such marvels, but you don't play against the guys like I have to. And first of all, it's not true because they play in mixed doubles sometimes. Like... It's just factually inaccurate, but it's also this idea that, like, you know, 
a woman's experience in a ma- a white woman's experience in a male dominated industry is somehow more difficult than like black women's experiences in the same a similarly male dominated space as sport yeah i mean like i can see where she is coming from i know why yes. she said it it's just unfortunate that she's a white woman yes talking to black women about yes. her struggles it's just not quite yeah, it, it's just not what we do is compare. No, it's, um, not, it's not a good. It's not a good thing. Um, yes, it's. And look, Jane has apologized for her comments, and she has corrected the record in, in saying that. Uh, you know, they turns out they do. <laughs> turns out Venus <laughs> and Serena have come up against quite a lot oh. and have qu- literally played against the guys. Um, it is really unfortunate because Jane Campion you know, is on this Oscar campaign and would be the first woman to ever win the same Oscars category twice. Is that right? Like a directing or writing? I'm actually not sure, but I do know that if she wins, she'll only be the third woman ever to have won Best Director, which is disgusting. Um, It's still, it's so fucked. Like I cannot believe it's 2022 and that's where we still are. Like last year, Chloe Zhao won for Nomadland. She was the first woman of color to win, you know, like Mm. Catherine Bigelow was the first woman in 2010 for the Hurt Locker. Like it's Oh my God, that was 2010. Yeah, fuck. Where's the TV show about that? (laughs) It's coming. I would actually watch that. She needed to be a bit more of a scammer to get a show. Yeah. Anyway, it's just, it's, I I haven't seen Power of the Dog. I want to see it in cinema and I have not been able to just yet. I was about to say you could watch it with Top Chef, but um, he can't go to the movies. He's got too much power. My dog has too much power to watch that. <laughs> I can't. I cannot. But yeah, look, I'm. I just don't feel particularly invested this year. Like last year, I actually did feel yes. invested. I really wanted Chloe Zhao to win for Nomadland. I thought that was a really gorgeous film. But yeah, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know this one. Eh. The one good thing about the Oscars this year, apart from all the Jane snafu stuff, someone on Twitter did a really great thread of Marge Simpson as Best Actress nominations, <laughs> and it is so good. Like I know that we've seen so many of these. It's like someone as a cupcake, or, you know, like all their outfits, you know, like as a cupcake <laughs> or like cereal or sandwiches or whatever. Like, but um, Marge Simpson as Best Actress is beautiful, and we will link to that in the show notes. It's a perfect thread, and it opens with. With uh, Jessica Chastain for the eyes of Tammy Faye, which I just want to shout out. It's uh, I'm rooting for Jessica. I want her to win Best Actress. Sorry, Olivia Coleman. My Coleman heads are going to be mad, but Jessica Chastain, oh, tour de force. No wait, Kristen Stewart for Spencer. That's where I. That's where I will always lie. Sorry, uh, I think. This is this is just an audio podcast, so people can't see me doing my Kristen Stewart impression, which is just me rubbing my cheek on my shoulder and looking up. I'm sorry, is your impression being a really great actress? Because that's what it should be. <laughs> it's time for Also Also's. This is the segment at the end of every episode where Kate and I recommend a few things that we're consuming, buying, reading, applying... Uh, all kinds of things. Kate, what's your first one? Okay, my first one is a covet also. I think that, you know, we're all at home. We have been at home for years now 
dreaming of changing the place we live and looking at a lot of different like guides online and like everyone obsessed with, you know, like the design files in Australia and like Instagram accounts dedicated to selling beautiful Californian homes. I don't think that's just me, but one that I particularly like is the online journal by InBed who make linen products, really beautiful linen products, but they have this journal online and you can separate it into different sections. My favorite is the homes tab, but generally they're like photographs and interviews uh, with people living all around the world and they talk about like the, the place that they live in and what it means to them. And it's a nice little procrastinatory tool without, you know, feeling too bad about it. My first one is a read also. I read a novel recently called Writers and Lovers by Lily King. It came out, I think, in 2020. So it's not a brand new uh, book, but I only heard about it a few months ago. And I demolished this in a way that I have not sped through a book in a really long time. I had a couple of plane trips, very short ones, but turns out you only need a couple of hours to get through like fucking a third of a novel. It's set in 1997 and it follows a early 30, like 31 year old woman called Casey Peabody, who is waitressing at like this very fancy sounding Boston restaurant. She's deeply in debt and she has been working on her first novel for six years and it tracks her kind of past and present relationships and her the daily grind and the daily labor of working like a hospitality service industry job and also the feeling of kind of stuckness that you are in in your life when you are deeply in debt and you cannot see any possible way out of it but it also manages to be like very romantic and very lyrical. The prose is really amazing. And I just have not been sucked so deeply and emotionally into a novel in a really, really long time. Oh, that sounds great. It's so exciting when you finally, you know, go on airplane mode on your phone and then read a book that you cannot put down. It's just the best feeling. I've also got to read also, I mentioned it in the, maybe the second episode when we were talking about like books and what we were like excited to read. And I had this one book that I was desperate to read, but had some deadlines that I had to meet before I allowed myself to like fully delve into it. And it's Jessica Stanley's A Great Hope, which came out just a couple of weeks ago. It's the kind of interwoven lives of a number of women who are connected to a once great union leader who had a fall from grace in his work personal life and also mm-hmm. literally in that he falls off the roof and dies in like the first page <laughs> oh my god yeah so it's this great kind of political page turner of a book but also really beautifully weaves in the thoughts and emotions of these women and how they relate to him and how they relate to each other and it talks quite a lot about like personal success stories or the way that the women who kind of you know or people in general who put a lot of pressure on themselves to reach a certain point by a certain age and they don't do it. And then what happens then? I found all that very interesting and um, I can see it being like a TV series. Like I was reading it going like, 
if this mm. hasn't been optioned already, like someone is letting, someone should be fired essentially. Mm. It'll be perfect on screen. But another thing that I really loved about it is that it is set in Melbourne, um, particularly in Fitzroy and um, the, the CBD. And it's been a really long time since I have read a book set in Melbourne. Um, I mean, I guess mm. there was Ronnie Scott's book from a couple of years ago. So they have like, there are, there are books that have come out, but, um, but yeah, it was just really delightful reading it and thinking about the streets that the characters were walking down. I had a similar reaction a couple of years ago to reading Kokomo by Victoria Hannon, oh, yeah. which is set in like a very specific pocket of, I think, Thornbury. And I would be taking the tram home up St. George's Road sometimes. And I would be like, I think they're just there. And I love that specificity of, you know, we're, we we grow up thinking that like, a show or a book or something set near Central Park is like a universal reference. And it's like, let's give the same treatment to fucking Edinburgh Brunswick Street. Yeah. <laughs> Brody, what else have you got? Okay. I've got a buy also, but it's question mark. I saw that New Balance did a sneaker collab with um, Staub and they are my dream sneaker, maybe. And they are available in my size. They've sold out in many sizes, but I have enormous feet. So they're still available. They're like a classic New Balance shape, but they have multicolored, very primary colored. And then the top of the sole of the sneaker is kind of sheer. Like you can see your toes through it if you're not wearing socks, but it's like frosted glass. Like it's not um, a clear panel. Like glass, glass bricks on a shoe. (laughs) yes yes it's like a like a mottled (laughs) 80s glass bricks um but kind of kind of foggy and yeah peeking in at my toesies (laughs) okay i'm gonna get you to send this to me maybe we should do a poll on our instagram yeah we'll do a poll on our instagram and you all can vote and um Look, even if you say no, I might still buy them. I My last one is a watch also. And this is because it is a show that we are going to talk about um, in the next couple of episodes. It's Severance. It's on Apple TV. It just came out like it's it's a recent show but they're we're like really through the first season now like they're eight episodes or something like that six episodes I just started watching on the weekend could not stop watching it and then when it got to the point where the next episode wasn't about to play it was like suddenly became fearful that that was the finale and nothing had happened in the finale but no it's like a week-to-week show anyway mm-hmm. Adam Scott stars in it as a guy who has chosen a particular life for himself where you are separated your work life is separated from your personal life and we'll get into it in a bigger way um but yeah it was it was really fascinating yeah I guess this is kind of a heads up for a future episode because yeah on the weekend Kate texted me said that she had started watching it and I thought I got some free time for the first time in a while I'll watch an episode or two of this show I'd been hearing about it a little bit And yeah, cut to like six hours later, I had the similar panic that there were no more episodes. I think I have more notes to discuss with you about this show than I have for anything we've ever talked about before. So yeah, this is your warning to catch up. We'll, we'll dig into it and um, it'll be really fun. 
My last one is a listen also. Yesterday, when you're listening to this, the uh, third album by the Melbourne band Camp Cope was released. It's called Running With The Hurricane. I just wrote a profile on the band that is out today online. If you have a Google, it's been published in the Saturday paper. I just am really struck by this record. It's like very uh, evolved for the band. It's also just like lyrically, it's a very human record and very soothing and uplifting to listen to after the last couple of years. And I highly recommend pairing it with a listen of Georgia Mack, the lead singer of Camp Cope's 2019 solo record, which was like this foray into like electronic pop music and beat making, which I think bridges the gap between quote unquote early Camp Cope, their first two records, which are more folk punk sounding and this new one running with the hurricane. Yeah. Look, I love Camp Cope so much. Such a brilliant band and a really exciting, exciting album. Well, thanks for listening to See Also. It's been really exciting to uh, see everyone reacting and because people seem to like it. I don't know. Um, we've made a big decision in our lives. We're busy business women, but we're going to take this podcast weekly, fortnightly, no more. We're going to see how it works for us. Um, but it's pretty exciting. There'll be a new episode every Saturday now. Yeah. In case you haven't noticed, uh, we have a lot to say about a lot of things and uh, we're no longer frozen by the idea that we'll turn on our microphones and have nothing to say to each other. So yeah, weekly episodes, every weekend going forward. In the meantime, though, before our next episode comes out, you can catch up with us on Instagram at See Also Podcast. Kate and I are also both very online. You can follow her at Kate Jinx and me at Brody Lancaster. And if you could leave us a review, that would be really great. And also share it with your friends. Um, thank you, as always, to Samuel Hodge for our beautiful imagery and Harvey Sutherland for our original theme music. Speaking of, you can go and see Harvey Sutherland's album launch at Rising Festival if you're in Melbourne or want to travel for like a really exciting new arts festival. That's in the first week of June. And I hear tickets are selling fast. Yeah, I bought mine. <laughs> see you there. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.